0: Check out 100blackmen.org and nul.org to donate and learn more. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We, as black people, are so resourceful. We are so imaginative. And many of us never lose that, even in the face of adversity. We look for ways around it. Think about this. A guy like A.G. Gatson, who started the Gadsden Motel in Birmingham, Alabama, one of the premier places for people to stay. The people who started the Lorraine Motel, where Aretha Franklin, uh, Mahalia Jackson stayed. These people realized a version of the American dream parallel to what white people were doing with less resources, more imagination, more determination, more self-knowledge.
1: Welcome to While Black, a seriously opinionated podcast, bringing you the real and raw on anything happening while black. If black culture's there, we're there. If you're pissed or empowered, then let's talk about it. Ride with us on this all-Black everything.
2: Everybody, welcome back to Wild Black. Welcome back. Welcome
1: back.
2: Yeah. So, you know how we typically do. We've got some amazing information for you today. Something I'm actually really, really excited to talk about because it's it's so tied to history, and we have, we've heard about it. We haven't talked about it on Wild Black before, but it's something that's come up many times in, in conversation. Uh, we're, we're talking about the Green Book today, not the movie, the Green Book, but I'm sure we'll touch on that. Uh, we've got an amazing guest on the show today. As, as a matter of fact, let me just break down a little bit about who he is and what he's got going on. So last summer, award-winning broadcaster Alvin Hall, who's here with us today, And activist Janae Woods-Weber hit the road for a powerful historic trip from Detroit to New Orleans. As they traveled south, they collected powerful personal testimonies from the folks they came in contact with. And at each stop made, they dug into the local history and the role that the historic guy, the Negro motorist Green Book, played in our history. During the journey, Alvin figured out, unearthed, learned some inspiring and heartbreaking tales that tell a different story from what Hollywood would have you to believe. Again, what you saw in the 2018 movie wasn't necessarily accurate. The stories from his trip turned into driving the Green Book podcast, a living history podcast that preserves a powerful legacy and honors the stories of those who lived through the era, supported and uplifted each other, and fought for equality. But before we jump into our opening segments, our Wild Black shit, a dope quote, I just want to welcome Alvin to the Wild Black Podcast. Brother Alvin, welcome to the show. How are you today? Thank you, Vince. I'm really good.
0: I'm really good. I'm so excited about this. This is the first interview I've given about
2: this podcast, so you're going to get it all. It's all in my head waiting for you. (laughs) Let's let's make it a good one. Listen, I told the folks just a little bit about you being an award-winning broadcaster. I love it. Take a few moments and tell them a little bit more about yourself. Here we flex on Wild Black, because everything is about our guest being highly expert, being credible, and really laying out some information to the people. So I know you spent a lot of time doing a lot of amazing things, including and in addition to Green Book research. So tell the people just a little bit more about you. Well, I started my
0: career really on Wall Street in 1982. And I was involved in providing training for different companies. It started out being an exam prep training getting people ready for their different exams, the Series 7, the Series 24, the Series 6. But then that evolved and I became a much more generalist trainer and I started teaching classes for regulatory authorities, uh, for brokerage firms and banks about how the financial markets work, the products available in the industry, how trading and settlement works, risk to reward, fundamental analysis versus technical analysis. That was really what I did for years and years. And then after getting laid off from a job I love in 1990, I then started my own consulting firm and did this on my own for a number of years. And then one day I was on vacation with a friend in London and... We met this guy in a gallery, the photographer's gallery, when it was on Leicester Square. Right. And he said to me, you should be on television. And I said, no, I'm not interested. (laughs) And then a friend of mine made me go to the audition. And lo and behold, I got my first BBC series, Alvin Hall's Guide to Successful Investing. And so I took all that information I had been teaching in these classes on Wall Street and turned it into personal finance. And that led to a whole development of a career of writing books about personal finance, uh, telling people how to manage their money better. That career went very well. I I hosted a landmark series on the BBC called Your Money or Your Life, the very first money makeover show before there was Suzy Orman on television. I was doing all that in, in the UK. And eventually, I decided to move into more cultural programming, And so I did uh, a program with Jay-Z called Jay-Z from Brooklyn to the Boardroom that won the Wincott Award. I did uh, Who Sold the Soul, which won a Sony Award in England. And so I've been doing all of these cultural radio shows about Katrina, about money, about gospel music. And so this
2: show is really an outgrowth of that interest. Wow, you have a, a very storied career. It's amazing how we get positioned into things that we don't necessarily know we even want ourselves. I'm grateful for that friend who told you to go make it happen.
0: Yes, it was interesting. I resisted it. I really did, because I had never imagined myself doing that. I had had a great career on Wall Street. I was a great trainer. I was well-respected. I had great clients. I really didn't need that opportunity. But my friend, Susan, kept saying, you need to do it. And I did it, and lo and behold... It did change my life and put me on this
2: completely new trajectory. Amen. Well, Susan, we appreciate you. We definitely appreciate you here. (laughs) And listen, I'm going to go ahead and put this plug in now. Um, This season, we actually want to do a a series about finance. So I'd love to be able to tap back into you, bring you back on and have a conversation about that at a little bit different date, if that's okay with you. Absolutely. I love talking about personal finance.
0: I write about it. If you remember, there was a show on NPR called uh, Tell Me More with Michelle Martin. Mm -hmm. I was the longest serving a uh, person a financial personal finance person on that show for many many years and she was really generous and warm to me i still write about personal finance for different publications so yes i'll gladly come on your
2: show awesome 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 well with that <laughs> we're gonna jump back into this here uh art right, brother
1: you ready to jump through this wild black shit i love it uh, you, you already know <laughs> absolutely let's get it now the question this is, Alvin, are you ready to jump through this wild black shit? <laughs> yes, I am. That's what I'm talking about. He's <laughs> right. his is more smoothed out, because I knew he was going to come on here and do some teaching. <laughs> <laughs> this might be an educational wild black shit today for all the listeners. All right, first question. If you were able to bring back one black civil rights leader, who would it be and why? That's easy for me.
0: John Lewis. I met him a couple of times at the Whitney Museum when he was giving a talk. I met him a couple of times in D.C., and he was just charismatic. There was something about the way he viewed life. Everybody now quotes that term, good trouble. But what I liked about him most was there was a soft determination to him. He could listen. He would be in the moment with you, and he would offer you sincere unvarnished advice, even when he did not necessarily think you were right. He didn't say it in a way that made you feel less. But his connection to history, his connection to the truth, his connection to what the journey that we took to get where we are today in terms of the rights that we have and how much farther we have to go, he is the one
1: who I wish was still alive. Wow. And that's a that's a recent civil rights leader, too. So that that... That's touching. That that is relevant right now. So I I, I love that. Uh, that's what you think.
2: I thought it was a great answer. It, honestly, it was unexpected. And when he said it, for a moment, I forgot that he was no longer with us. Right, right. It's it's so new. But I I agree that hold the whole premise of of good trouble is one that we should have been talking about long before and much more often before he passed. Right. I, I think it's. I think it's relevant, and I think that's exactly the concept we need to understand, right? There is good yes. trouble, the kind of trouble that leads you to a better place and creates the kind of destination that we as a community of black people need to fully exist in. That's the good trouble we, we want to get into. Uh, I,
1: I wish that was the concept we had been pushing before. Right, right. And, and even now, I mean, with this election on the horizon, right, it, it, and his focus on voting and how important that was, I, I, I like that choice, too. Absolutely. I like that choice.
0: Yeah, that was part of my reasoning, because voting is so important. I want everybody to get out and vote. People like John Lewis and everybody who marched from Selma to Montgomery and in every, every small town and city across America who fought during that period of time fought to give us the right to vote. Amen. We yeah. should exercise that
1: right. Absolutely. All right, second question. Yes. During the creation of Driving the Green Book podcast, you traveled and spoke with people all over the country. What, based on those travels and conversations, do you believe is the one thing we need most in the Black community today? We need to recognize
0: the persistence of people who really don't want to let go of our past. Mm. They want to trap us in these images related Mm -hmm. to white supremacy Mm. that came about during Reconstruction. One of the things that we were nervous about doing this trip, Janae and I, was that we would get stopped. A black woman Mm -hmm. and a black man with a black producer in a car with a camera and... With a recording device, this could have been a dangerous situation. Yeah. But, but when we would talk to people, everybody referenced how they had been treated in the past and how much that still exists. People want to trap, box, there's so many different verbs I could think of, us in that world, and we have to constantly fight that. And that's a battle that's not going away so easily. Hank Sanders, who was the first senator elected to the Mississippi legislature since Reconstruction, said that he
2: underestimated the depth of white supremacy. I think we do that at our detriment. Mm. So Alvin, one of the things that, that you said that really caught me and and I appreciate the way you put it was we need to understand the how did you put it? the persistence from the other yes. side. And, and I, I think that's something we miss often, right? We talk about the perseverance of black people. We talk about the persistence of black people. But the reality is we need to understand the offense that's coming at us. We need to understand how long they can fight the fight. And ultimately, I, I was having a conversation early today where I think we need to be very mindful of how much skin they have in the game, how long they'll continue to play the game, and we have to outlast them in order to win. Absolutely. And as I said today in a conversation
0: with a close friend, people are focused on the current president. Right. Yeah. That's not the frightening thing. Right. The frightening thing. Is all those people who believe the dystopian stories that are being presented exactly. at the current convention. And they actually think that's the truth.
2: Exactly. That's the greater worry. <laughs> it's not him. It's the fact that so many people believed him, support him, and, and still support yes. him. That's what's scary. And, and to take it a step further, the fact that we don't have true transparency into who all those people are. We work and walk by them every day, and they don't tell us. Correct. When, when you go to the um, the museum which is the one that everybody
0: calls the lynching lynching memorial in Montgomery. Right, right. One of the things that always hits me in any of those museums is that a lot of those events occurred during my lifetime. In those pictures, you see children, white children, standing. You see their faces snarled. I tell everybody, you need to realize those people are still alive.
2: They are, Mm -hmm. yes. They are
0: not dead. And that hatred... Is still there unless some great epiphany occurred. It's sitting there just waiting to jump out
2: again. They are parents and grandparents today still instilling that level of racism and hate in their children. And those children deal with ours every day. Yes. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Hit it with question number three, brother.
1: Yes. This is a signature question, the one that we love to ask every single one of our amazing guests. What do you love most about life while black?
0: I love the the knowledge that we share as a people that does not have to always be said or spoken in words. Mm. We can be <laughs> at a dinner party. We can be in a social setting, and all we have to do is look at each other, mm. and we know what is being said. We know that we're making a comment, a visual comment about something that's been said in the room. I was born in a very small community in the Florida Panhandle, and I grew up with 52 of my family members around me all the time. And so this world in which you shared looks, those knowing looks, those statements that my parents used to make when somebody would say something that they thought was interesting, Or something they thought was curious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> that's what they would say. And all of those are things I love about being black.
1: I yeah. love it. It's in a nod. It's in a word. It's yeah. in a yep. sound. It's in a yep. look. It's in it's in the swag. I mean it. it yeah, it's, it's us. So much. Yes. Uh, so much nonverbal communication. It's almost like a, a whole different language. I think it was Pinky <laughs> said that's that's a
2: superpower we have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah. All right, so I'm going to jump into the dope quote. And for our listeners, they know the dope quote is something typically uh, from politics, religion, theology, yeah. philosophy, science, music, entertainment, the arts. But it comes from the mouth of someone black and it has impact on the black world today. And I'm tweaking it just a little bit today because I just found myself in a, in a different space. So today's dope quote is actually not a quote. It's a question that I pulled from the writings and the, the recordings I was reading that was left behind by some of the Freedom Riders. And so I'm going to ask it in riddle form. And, and Alvin, I want you to jump in first and give me what you think the answer is and why. And then Art, I'd love for you to do the same thing. And understand, there's no wrong answer here. This is just about, I want, I want our listeners to hear this and think about the question, think about your answers and formulate their own. So, what am I? I can easily be lost and I've never fully been won. My essence is internal struggle. What am I? I am a black person who has
0: seen adversity. I have recognized the reality in which I live. I have made my peace with some of it. I have kept some of myself to myself so that I had a have a well of me to touch, but yet I remain positive, I remain proactive, and I'm determined to be the best me I can
2: be. I have kept some of myself to myself. Self. I love that. Brother Art, I feel <laughs> bad for you, man. You got to go behind that. <laughs> that was a good one. I'll read it one more time. I can easily be lost, and I've never fully been won. My essence is eternal struggle. What am I? Freedom. That's where I went to. Break it down.
1: Freedom. W- what's your why? It's, it, it's in the context of African Americans. Um, we've been fighting for, and I'll, I'll break it down backwards to, to I can easily be lost. Um, but I've never been fully won. So the essence of of this constant and continuous struggle for equality freedom um has is is daunting right it 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 feels like an absolute eternal struggle in america for an african american and in any context that you can think of it in any system within this country it is an eternal struggle like we have not Fully won at any level, in my opinion, just yet.
2: Right.
1: Um, the freedoms that we talk about, right? Like we we look at the times today, there is this perception that police have not been killing people for for forever since the inception of of police forces um, attacking African American people, right? Right. And now it's coming to the forefront, so it can easily be lost, but it's never really fully been won. So in the essence of that first piece, I, it can easily be lost. We never really had it, so it, it it truly is a struggle, and it's an. I think it, unfortunately, the perception is freedom is something that we're going to be struggling for 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 a very long time. It, it that that's kind of how I see it and yeah. how I internalize it, and it's not a. Um, you know how some 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 comments and statements have a a, a a shining light at the end of it, right? Of hope. Right. This does not have that. Right. Right. It ends with struggle. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Eternal struggle. Right.
2: <laughs> Listeners, I, I want each of you all to, to take a moment and, and just really reflect on that. Like what what is that answer to you? And even more so, what role does your being play? And making sure that whatever that answer to you is achieved by all, I think that's a challenge that I'd love to issue to everyone listening. And then then I'll jump in because I, I was going to go past it, but I know if I do, Art's going to call me out.
1: Absolutely, I was waiting. <laughs> I was waiting to say where my man going with this question, with, with this one too.
2: My answer is life, and specifically black life. Right? We we see all too often now because of the recordings that black life can easily be lost, and then. Given your comment was freedom and the fact that we haven't quite got there yet, then I still question, is my life truly my own? Because we're out here fighting every day for the right to breathe. We're out here every day fighting for our portion, our piece of this American dream. We're out here fighting for equality. And when I think about who we are as a people, not just today, but as far back as I can remember and as far back as the history books can tell us and as far back as the stories that have been passed down from generation to generation go, our life has been about the struggle. It's not that we haven't found enjoyment during the struggle, but we've struggled from sun up to sundown to make change, to establish ourselves, to find new heights, to teach, to inspire, to learn, like our struggle as Black Americans, as Black people, has been eternal. And I do hope that at some point we can no longer align with this quote or this question or this passage. Like, that is my hope for us tomorrow. Hey, Wild Black listeners, I know we're having a great conversation today. I want to break and give you a quick word from one of our sponsors. Listen, y'all, the presidential election is coming up soon, and I don't have to tell you what's at stake. I don't have to tell you how important it is, but what I can tell you is if we don't pay attention to our history, well, you know the rest. And that's why what I'm about to tell you is so important. I want you to check out a new podcast. It's called 6020: 20 the election of 1960, and Its echoes today. And it tells the story of the Kennedy campaign and how it influenced American campaigns since. The series covers the 1960 campaign from the primaries through election night, highlighting key moments and lesser-known stories in the race leading up to the final vote, and how JFK and his team worked to win over Black voters who were skeptical of his commitment to civil rights. Sounds kind of familiar, right? Sixty Twenty also gives listeners a sense of what was happening in America during this pivotal time, as sit-ins and other demonstrations against racial segregation swept through the country. Again, something that should sound really familiar. I can't stress to you enough the importance of understanding our history and where we've been. So go listen to 6020, the election of 1960, and its echoes today, wherever you listen to your podcast at. And now let's get back to our episode. Brother Alvin, you ready to jump into I know it already feels like we've been there, but are you ready to jump into the core of this interview yet? Yeah, that was that question was so good and your answer was so just
0: thought-provoking. Thank you, I uh, appreciate it. And so, that. on so many levels for me, and it relates very much to what we learned while driving the Green Book.
2: Mm, break it down, tell us more. That's, that's a great segue. What we learned
0: about the struggle, which is eternal, is that it constantly morphs. Mm-hmm. As the people who put us into a position of having to struggle, every time we make a success, it morphs into something sometimes more obvious, but usually more subtle and insidious.
2: Yes. (laughs) And it
0: really becomes most interesting when it's morphs into the thing that makes you look bad for even questioning it. Yes.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's when it's
0: the most insidious, because... Maybe I'm not seeing this correctly. Maybe, maybe, maybe this is a. Maybe I'm just being paranoid. Maybe it's me. But you're me. not being paranoid, right? <laughs> right. This is what's going on. But it started out as one type of struggle, but then it gradually morphs into different types, and that's what we as a people need to be aware of. Yes. That sometimes it will be external to us, but sometimes it becomes these weird psychological plays in moments in offices when you have conversations with somebody with a boss. You never can tell where that struggle, where that challenge is coming from that will create the next version of that struggle in your life.
2: Yes, you're spot on with that, brother. Spot on with that. <laughs> I love that. Thank All right, you. so as we, as we begin to talk more about, about the podcast, I, I want to ground us a little bit about the green book in itself. And, yes. and before I do, I was doing a little reading last night and, and I ran into this line. It says, carry your green book with you you may need it. And that line was written on the cover of the Green Book and was a model that doubled as a warning. So the very first question that I want to ask you as we begin to dive into this topic is that while today we don't necessarily need a Green Book with us at all times, but that doesn't mean that there isn't still danger and injustice lurking and looking for us as we move in this country day-to-day, minute-to-minute. So in lieu of a Green Book, what as black folks do you think we need to carry with us physically, emotionally, spiritually in its place today?
0: Vince, I ask this question of a wonderful woman we met in New Orleans who wrote a book called The Post Racial Negro Green Book. Right. Her, Her name is. is Jan Miles and she chronicles all the injustices and police brutality and killing of black people in this book. And when I asked her that question, she said, these are issues that people are dealing with. So you have online forums that share this information. Mm-hmm. You have groups of people who are looking at putting together lists and sharing it. The alternative to Airbnb, for example, right? So you have the BnB Noir, I think it's called, right. in which black people who have been rejected on Airbnb can go and find places that are much more friendly to black people. Right. I think we have to be realistic about what we will face when these situations happen. And we can't think that because we've achieved a level of, uh, f- of uh, financial uh, wealth, a level of social prominence, that is not gonna happen right. to you too. Right. Because when they see us, they don't see you as an individual first. They don't even see the accoutrements
2: that you're wearing. Right. They
0: see your black skin,
2: right. and that's what you become. That's right when your black skin is a weapon carry your green book with you you may need it. it is still applicable today regardless if you carry a green book or not get it and remember that a lot of this wisdom existed
0: within various communities it was both wisdom and knowledge so as a young lady in nashville said her name is anna nettles she said in the old days when you went to uh, louisville you know the main street to go to was walnut street When you came to Nashville, it was Jefferson Street. When you went to um, uh, Atlanta, it was uh, Sweet Auburn. So you have all of this knowledge that was shared back and forth very much uh, back then, word of mouth. But now we have the Internet where it can be shared more openly and more expansively.
2: Yeah, yeah. All right, so there's someone listening who doesn't know what the Green Book is, or or there's someone listening— who, there's only, who their only experience with the Green Book is, the movie that came out a couple of years ago. So take a second, Alvin, and break down what the Green Book actually is. The Green Book was created during
0: Jim Crow and segregation as a guide for African-American people traveling around America to find places to stay, to eat, to find comfort, to even use bathrooms, to have your car repaired, to have your hair done. It was started by Victor Hugo Green in 1936. Victor lived on Sugar Hill in Harlem, which was then an area full of interesting people like Duke Ellington and a lot of the writers of the Harlem Renaissance were there during that period of time. Mm -hmm. And he was a postman in New Jersey. He and his wife Alma would drive down to Richmond, Virginia, where his wife had relatives, and he had relatives in Virginia also. And on the way down, they couldn't get gas in some places. They couldn't use a bathroom in some places. You couldn't. If you had an accident, where are you going to sleep? So he started this as a guide to help him and his friends who uh, who travel know where they could find the places to stay, eat along the road. Also, Alma's brother was a jazz musician, And so during his travels around America, I'm sure he came back and told them stories. So Victor started assembling this information. First, it was only about New York and basically New York, Connecticut, New Jersey, basically New England in the first edition. And gradually it rolled out across America. How did he do this? He was a member of the Postman's Union. Uh And remember, in those days, there was a white postman union and a black postman union. And so a lot of the black postmen in their areas knew where the safe places were. And therefore, when they would have their annual conference, they would more than likely bring this information or write it and share it with Victor. And it went into the publication over time as more and more and uh, inf- more and more information came in, and he rolled it out across America. First, it was New England, as I said, and then it went all the way down to Florida, up to the Mississippi, and then gradually, I think, starting in the 1938 uh, edition, it started to go over the Mississippi and, and all across America. And then he had a problem of, of figuring out whether the place was the type of quality that he wanted to mm-hmm. have in the Green Book, and therefore he had people on the ground, postmen and other people, to attest to the quality of the places that were featured in the Green Book. Wow, that is and it was super interesting. Yeah, it was published until 1967. Uh, Victor died in 1960, and in one, one of his last uh, uh, essays in the book, he said he hoped there would be a time when the Green Book would no longer be necessary when uh, we would have all the rights and privileges right. of all U.S. citizens. And it would be a great day for him when this publication would no longer need it. But until it was not needed, he would continue to publish it. And the last one was published in 1967. Alma, I think, stayed in charge of it until 1964. Right. And then two friends of theirs took it over and published the last two editions of it.
2: I wonder if I could go back yes, and ask Victor today, does he feel like it's still needed in some capacity? Because I read that quote, and I understand the position he was writing it from then, by being hopeful that at some point we wouldn't need this type of protection. But then if he could see what was happening today, I wonder what his perspective would then be. I think that would be interesting. It would be interesting. And your statement is just stunning to me because
0: that's what I was writing about (laughs) <laughs> Yesterday, that was exactly the, the passage that I was putting at one of the ends of the episode because they knew that, that African-Americans needed this guide to get through this difficult period of Jim Crow and segregation. Yeah. But they also wanted it to be temporary. And if you look at the Green Book over m- the many editions, the one thing you don't see mentioned is racism. You don't see much negativity in the book. So Victor and Alma were hopeful people, but wow. I also believe that he was a smart man. If you're a postman in New Jersey and you're doing this publication and it turns out to you use words or language that could be incendiary and your boss found out in New Jersey, what could happen to you? Shut you down. Shut you down, exactly. Shut and so fire think, you. Yeah, and so I think Victor was smart in that way, and but I think he would he and Alma were fundamentally optimistic people. Absolutely. so I think he would be disappointed, right by what has happened today. I think that he wouldn't understand why there has not been uh, more progress. Right. A man we vi- visited in uh, Jackson, Mississippi, Frank figures said something. He uh, has this beautiful, old, s- slow Southern voice, and he <laughs> said there was so much progress made between 1960 and 1970 that he thought surely freedom would come, mm. total freedom would come soon,
2: and he just said, mm, mm, mm. Mm. "I feel that it." That said it all. It did. Going back to that yeah. that communication, that superpower
1: that we have, it's he said a whole lot. In those yes. three moments, yes, hope is important, right, for survival. If you, if you really think about it, hope is important for survival. But you mentioned something that I think is is, is prolific in the essence of, of of what it is. This insidiousness of in depth of of this racism and this inequality, like it it is so profoundly deep within the the, the core of the nation that it's disheartening, right? It almost breaks my heart to, to think about that story and the effort and the work that he put into the Green Book and everybody associated with it in the hopes that we would never have to use it in the future.
0: I think you're right. I think it is disheartening. But I think everybody we interviewed during this journey would tell a personal story about an encounter with racism. Some light, some funny, but (laughs) you know what? Everybody remained hopeful. Mm. And I think it's part of looking to the future as the place where you know things can change. When I was growing up in the small town in uh, Florida, uh, my parents did not like to talk about the past. They just didn't. And they would often say to me, you need to keep yourself focused on the future, because that's where you can change things. Mm. What is done is done. You can learn the wisdom for that and take the wisdom forward. But don't be trapped by the bitterness. Don't be trapped by the hatred. Don't be trapped by the vengeance. Move forward in a way you can make your life better and help other people make their lives better and i think that's was the victor point of
2: view he refused to be trapped yeah i love that i like think we we need more of that now the the ability to maybe even be fueled by the understanding of what's happened historically and use that to propel us forward to create the type of future that changes the narrative that, that for me it, it basically turns into i am motivated because I don't want my children to deal with what I deal with. Yes. And I definitely don't want my children to have to deal with my father dealt with or my grandfather dealt with. And for me, that, that's a, a significantly motivating factor. I agree. So I want to dive into the podcast a little bit. I want to talk yes. about that because I, 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 think that, I think that our listeners will benefit from and enjoy listening and learning. Right? Because one thing that we yes. do on Wild Black pretty consistently is teach and our listeners have come to love that. And so being able to take a longer form journey on something mm-hmm. I think would be refreshing for them. So listeners as we talk about this I really want you to make it a point to go and check out this podcast. Go and learn more about driving the green book. By the time you hear this I think it should be out by then. Um but I September want you September to... 15th. There you go. September 15th. I want you to sit with it. I want you to, to learn from it. I want you to let this sink in and, and find the, the lessons and how you can apply them towards yourself today and your future tomorrow. But with that, Alvin, I know that The Green Book has been a part of you and your research for a long time, for years prior to this podcast actually being created. I'd love to just start with what was the inspiration behind Driving The Green Book? in 2016.
0: Uh, I was working on a program for the BBC. And the producer I was working with knew of another producer who had read about The Green Book in the UK, Jeremy Grange, and he wanted to do a show about it. And so he called me about doing a one-episode program about The Green Book. I knew a little about The Green Book at that point, but not a great deal. Right. So much to my pleasure, he got the show commissioned at the BBC... They gave us a 27-minute time slot. He came to America. We produced the show uh, from my hometown near Tallahassee, Florida, and ended in Ferguson, Missouri, talking to people about the Black Lives Matters movement. So we literally took it from the past to the present. Mm. And that show was hugely successful internationally, but did not air in America at all. So from that experience, I kept thinking, there is another show here, and I was in an exhibition about Jacob Lawrence' painting series, the 60 paintings called The Great Migration. Right. And in that, there was many, many pictures of people making change, and as a part of that, there was a statistic that said in, in 1910, the population of Detroit was 1.7% African American. By 1970, Ow. it was over 43% African American, one wow. of the largest increases there. So that gave me this idea that let's do a trip from Detroit South, going through Ohio, going through Mississippi, going through uh, all of the states, you know, Alabama. And to, because this was a, would have been a route that many, many people took right. to go back home to visit relatives, to go to funerals, to go to weddings, whatever. And that became the idea for this show. So I wrote it up. And it took me a while to find somebody who, would, who was willing to go on this journey with me. Um, many publishers said, oh, yeah, we're interested. And many <laughs> podcast companies, oh, yeah, we're interested. But they really never stepped up. Right. And it was an old friend of mine from my publishing days, from when I, was, uh, when I had written books about money, that introduced me to the people at Macmillan who opened the door. Her name was Aly- Alyssa Martino and she got the idea in the first meeting. And that's where the idea came from. And then I thought, if I'm gonna do a road trip, I need somebody to come along with me who has a different perspective from me. So Janae Woods-Weber is a friend of mine. Uh, She was raised in a community in New England, but her father is from Birmingham, Alabama, and she had never done a road trip like this through the South. So here I am, a guy born in the South, born in segregation, right, has seen how the South has changed and evolved. And this would be her trip coming down for the first time, seeing much of this information. So mm. you'd have two different points of view and two yeah. different perspectives on many, much, many of the situations. I truly can't wait to listen to it. How long were yes. you all on the road? 12 days, 2,021 miles in a mid-sized SUV. It was a lot of driving. Um, Yeah, and it was every day we would be going someplace and doing interviews and you might be tired, but as soon as we sat down and we set up the mic Mm -hmm. and um, we'd have these sort of moments that were so just Southern and Black. So I would be interviewing someone and uh, Janae would be sitting there, and they would say something, and I would respond in a certain way. And they'd say, "Stop! Stop for a minute. Where are you from?" <laughs> I would go, uh, uh, "South of Tallahassee, Florida." You sound just like my uncle, or you sound just like a relative of mine. <laughs> you know that sort of old Southern thing, which is mm-hmm. in me, is still there. And so we just had some great interviews, and what we discovered, uh, Vincent Art, as we went along is that the show was becoming something different. It was initially conceived of to go to each town and look for a specific Green Book location, right. talk about what it was, what went on there. But many of the people had never been asked certain types of questions. So when we did, it just opened up these wonderful memories, rich uh, about good situations, dangerous situations, personal things that were, left them traumatized, things that made them laugh, how they got from one place to another. And so what we did then, we rethought the podcast. Right. And now it's built around a set of themes. It's still a journey, but it's not just the physical journey from Detroit to New Orleans. It's the journey into people's memories, their yeah. thoughts, <laughs> their recollection, and their reflection on the connection between what they experience today and what they see in the news
2: and on television today. Right. I've got so many questions, but the first one I, I want to ask is, how did you identify, not necessarily where to stop, but who to engage with, right? Because I could see myself hopping in my vehicle, heading south. I'm headed to Birmingham, Alabama, and I'm going to stop at a, an old-school barbershop. I'm going to walk in, and I'm going to try to get a conversation started. I'm going to talk to a barber who might not have any idea of the history there, how, how did you find the right people to get the right stories? That was the job of our field producer Olowa
0: Keme Andalusia. Sorry, that was the job of our field producer Olowa Keme Andalusia. So she had to go out and find these people. So we had meetings, and we suggested that she call local historical societies, black organizations, in towns along the way. Um, uh, public libraries and then i also knew some people in some of these areas so we would call those people and ask them who should we talk to in this area so it was about you know we call it black geography right right? Right. connecting people to people and then some people said yes some people said no Uh, but we also managed to find just some amazing people who just opened doors to memories Mm -hmm. and thoughts that were incredible One of the people we interviewed on our first day had dropped out of school to become uh, a session player at Motown. His name was Mackenzie Jackson. And on his first day, first gig at Motown, and this is what we opened the interview with, by the way, guess what was the first song he played on, Vinson Art? What was
1: it? Revolt is building the largest platform for Black creators globally. Become a member of our network at RevoltCreators.com. The, the future, future is, is ours to create.
0: create. Smokey Robinson. Ooh, baby, baby. First job. <laughs> first session at no Motown. <laughs> That's, That's a just, big start. Yeah. That's a big start, isn't it? It's a big start. So you know, we had those moments like that where you'd get chills. Or when we discovered talking to Noelle Trent who is uh, one of the uh, directors of uh, interaction and development at the uh, National Civil Rights Museum in the Lorraine Motel, how many people know that The Midnight Hour was written at the Lorraine Motel as well as Knock on Wood? I had no idea. Yeah, this is is the type of stuff, those are the type of lighthearted things you find out in the series. But then you have the other stories of people who describe driving at night uh, and being followed, or the people who were light-skinned who could pass right. and told stories about passing in order to get rooms at hotels. So it's a
2: wonderful array of people and personal stories that people shared with us. Did any of those stories, or, or better yet, because I, I know the answer to that, which of those stories had the greatest impact on you? Ooh, that's a very good one. I cannot listen
0: to <laughs> Hank Sanders tell the story about how his mother gathered them together when they ran out of money or when they didn't have food. Right. He, it's in, in his segment, he's the first senator elected to the Mississippi legislature since, um, since Reconstruction. He talks about what it was like to grow up in a three-room house with all these children, and they had one chair in the house. He went on to graduate uh, from Harvard and become a lawyer. Wow. Um, He is an amazing man, but I cannot listen to his story about his mother and not cry. I just can't. Because his mother was a strong woman, and how he describes his mother's strength and his father's strength, It's just everybody who listens to that segment can't help but be moved by it. Uh, We're all touched by that. That's the one that probably haunts me, lives inside me, that I carry in in me. The one where I had to leave the recording was with Frank Figures in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, So I was raised in this very small town. I had an uncle named Uncle Son. And Uncle Son talked very slowly. Right. And he would say, yes, and on Sunday, we're going to church. Well, Frank figures had that cadence down. So I was doing the interview, and he was describing things, and all of a sudden, I felt the presence of my uncle, vividly. And I had to get up and leave the interview, because I started to cry in the middle of the interview. I couldn't. I just couldn't divorce the sound of his voice from the words he was saying. And how that could have come out of my
2: uncle's mouth. Wow. You you have to love moments that are powerful enough to grab you and take hold of you like that. Yes. I, I think that it's also tied to like when we're when we're inside of our passion and, and when we are doing what we are supposed to be doing in that moment. It's it's almost like reassurance that's come that's coming from someplace else to let you know, hey, this is where you're this is where you're at. This is where you're supposed to be at. Exactly. And another example of this would be a program we conceived
0: of literally when we finished recording it on the day we said, we have to do a program about this family in Nashville, the Nettles of Nashville. And that's one of the episodes, I think it's number five or number six. We met this wonderful, wonderful woman there, uh, Dr. Nettles who teaches at Tennessee State uh, University. And we met her niece, we met her niece's friend, and we met all these people. And the Nettles would talk about uh, 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 Dr. Nettles' father, Willie Nettles, and tell the stories of growing up in Moss Point, Mississippi. And when they took the road trip down, and what was it like? And Dr. N- they were so open. But here's what happened that was just amazing. Here we are. We finished the day's recording. We got a call from Anna Nettles. And we, we called and we said, we had called her, saying, we'd like to eat at a restaurant in town. She said, no, you're not. No, you're not. You're coming to my house for dinner tonight. Here we are, people she had just met, mm. and they invite us to the house. It was pouring rain, pouring rain, as we're driving, and we're joking. This is when we need a green book. <laughs> this is when we need a green book. <laughs> and so we, we drive down, and we finally see this little bitty sign with the right number, and we turn to this beautiful house, beautifully lit in this lovely part of town, this wooded area of town, and they opened the door, and we were there for so long, I thought they were going to ask us to leave, but it was this (laughs) wonderful camaraderie, and that's what we knew, that people who drove, who used the Green Book, who arrived at these tourist houses, arrived at these hotels, arrived at these restaurants, were greeted with this warm... Yeah, that's what they felt. ...this welcome that what they were looking for, which they couldn't get from
2: white establishments yeah. at all. Question, though. What did yeah. Ms. Nettles cook? What, what did she have waiting on you?
1: You would ask that, man. I'm hungry, <laughs> man.
2: <laughs> <laughs> they
0: pulled together some, uh, uh, some veg- it was mostly vegetarian food, uh, but it was good. It was good vegetarian food, you know, the sort of typical Southern things. And uh, uh, actually, I don't remember so much the meal as I remember that the wine was very good. (laughs) But I do remember the meal was Southern, but the conversation
2: was just so fantastic. Gotcha. So you are are releasing on September 15th, right? Yes, Driving the Green Book comes out on
0: September 15th. And it it comes out with a companion book Uh uh, that will be released in October. But the exciting news is that we've teamed up with Apple on this, and Apple has really been instrumental in giving this uh, a greater depth and a broader experience, so there will be Apple a curated music guide
2: Ooh, for music oh, wow.
0: coming out during this period of time. Uh, they're launching a new version of Apple Maps, and we are the first program. They're doing a curated map guide, so you'll have an Im- you'll be able to have an immersive experience and see all the places we saw whether they were there or not, where we could. We've gotten some historical photographs and show you what the place was like during that period of time. And it will follow us all along the way. And as we update this Apple Maps, you can download it and it will automatically update for you. That's awesome. Yeah, isn't that So it's this, I mean, Apple has been incredible in helping us to sort of make this something that has a broad reach, greater depth, and many different dimensions. You don't have to just listen to it. There'll be the scripts there. There'll be pictures from the road trip. So
2: it's it's a wonderful, wonderful experience. Apple is a, a really good friend of Wild Black. We've done some good things with them. Do you know how people can interact with that? With those options? Is it, is it going through Apple Podcasts or Apple Music? Is it a download? What can you tell them about that? Uh, you can go to um, the podcast site. There will be links to all of
0: this on the podcast site. We are creating a website called drivingthegreenbook.com. And on that, you'll be able to get all of this information in one place. Uh, I'm curating the books uh, for the site. They've asked me to choose five books that are really important to me and to help people understand this. And uh, you probably know what my number one book is. The Green you Book. you figure
1: it out? John <laughs> Lewis book.
0: Ah, uh, close. I thought about putting that there. No, The Warmth of Other Sun by Isabel Wilkerson. The book about the great migration.
2: Absolutely It a good is one.
0: such a strong book. I've read it five times, and I just love that book. I just can never get enough of the diversity of that book, and it explains why the green book was needed. As people went north and they achieved better lives, they wanted to come back home, and driving back to the south, Could be dangerous. But also in the North, it was also dangerous. So that's why the Green Book started out uh, focusing on New York and New England. Give us that name one more time. Isabel... Isabel Wilkerson.
2: Wilkerson, Wilkerson. Yep. It's a great book. The Warmth of Other Suns. If you had to boil it down to one lesson, everything that you got from all the time you spent on the road, city to city, interview to interview, you have to boil it down to one lesson. What would that be? We,
0: as black people, are so resourceful. We are so imaginative. And many of us never lose that, even in the face of adversity. We look for ways around it. Think about this. A guy like A.G. Gaston, who started the Gaston Motel in Birmingham, Alabama, one of the premier places for people to stay. The people who started the Lorraine Motel, where Aretha Franklin, uh, Mahalia Jackson stayed. These people realized a version of the American dream parallel to what white people were doing with Less resources, more imagination, more determination, more self-belief. And no matter what the circumstances of the person we met along the way, that was the takeaway for me. That the creativity is there. The the foresight is there. We just need to remind ourselves of it, not let the day-to-day keep us down and realize that we can break through some of these walls because some of them are emotional, some are real, Yeah. but you have to just keep plugging away. And sometimes you hit the
2: right combination of things. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. So we are running near the end of time, and I want to ask you one more question. Yes. You have a clear mic and open airwaves and every word that you know at your disposal. Using all that, what is the why behind why people should tune in to driving the green book?
0: People should tune in to driving the green book because it is a journey that will let them understand how people survived, how people created great businesses, how people developed life philosophies that they've passed on to their children and are passing on to us in this show. But if we look at it from another point of view, the Green Book is also a history lesson. Victor Hugo Green believed that with the passing of the Civil Rights Act, that all of discrimination would go away and that we would have equal opportunities across America. This show will remind us of the diverse ways, the many ways that people recognize that not one moment or one single act could change things, that, as Frank Figure said, all of us need to do what we can with what we have where we are to make a better world and a fairer place for
2: people. I couldn't have said that any better. That was
1: beautiful. Thank you. That was beautiful, brother Arch. You got anything, man? No, I'm still still reflecting on on all the nuggets provided. I can't wait for um, September 15th, the podcast to drop and all the supplemental components that are aligned with it. Amen. I'm looking forward to, to to hearing it. I'm hoping that um, as a pardon gift for everybody, in action would be to go and check that out and make sure that you put it on your calendar to, to show as much love as possible as soon as it drops.
2: Hey Amen. We, we, we have got to show love to the shows that show love to
1: us. mm mm-hmm.
2: Because we want them to keep being made. Yep. One of the things that
0: is true about this program, I've written many books and done a lot of things, and sometimes there's me in them, and sometimes there's not so much me in them. There's a lot of me in this. I can't wait. I went in this, and I took me into every interview. I wanted to connect to people. I wanted them to feel that I was present for them, and that whatever information they shared with me and the wisdom of that, I would then share it with the public so the public could hear their stories and benefit from their wisdom. I want everyone to take away something wise from each episode or even the entire
2: series. Well, Brother Alvin, at the end of every episode, we always turn the mic over to our guests to close us out. Tell the people whatever it is that's on your heart to tell them. Remind them the podcast is coming out on September 15th. Tell them how they can follow you, where they can track it, and then we'll get out of here. Mm -hmm. The mic is yours, my brother. Driving the Green
0: Book, which was produced by Macmillan Podcasts and created, narrated by me, Alvin Hall, will be on whatever platform you listen to your podcast series on starting September 15th of this year. Uh, please visit our website, which is drivingthegreenbook.com, and you'll discover the wonderful things that Apple has helped us create. Music playlists, reading lists, maps, curated guides. You'll learn so much. And even as you're listening to this, I want everybody to do one thing. Make sure you vote. Say
1: that again. Yes. I want everybody to get up and vote. I'm going to take it a step further. Vote for Biden and Kamala Harris. (laughs) I agree. (laughs) Well, with that, while black, peace. Be out. Thank you for a wonderful interview. Hey, everyone. My name is Odessa and you are in tune to Reasonings with Odessa. Now, if you are looking for something that is going to give you all access to Caribbean and African pop culture, this podcast is for you. Reasonings with Odessa is brought to you exclusively by Revolt Podcast Network, anchored in hip hop and powered by creators.